Psalm 7. The Shagon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O oh, righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We thank you this morning, Father, for who you are and for all that you have done. We thank you, Lord, and rejoice in your justice and your perfect nature. I ask this morning, Lord, that you would protect by the power of the Spirit the ears, the minds, and the hearts of those gathered here this morning, that only truth would be proclaimed today. Guard my heart as well, Lord, from selfish ambition or pride in any way, and quicken my tongue. We pray these things in the name of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Oh, you said it back. Sometimes that doesn't happen. It's like very, very sad. Uh, For those of you that don't know, my name is Beck. Uh, We have like a million verses to get to today, so we don't have a lot of uh, uh, time to kind of glow around. But I do have something I have to tell you. Uh, Everybody's Fourth of July was okay? Yeah, everybody has their fingers and toes. The last time you were here was Sunday, July 4th, but nothing had exploded yet, so I had to check. I'm wondering why it's so full this morning. I'm thinking maybe that's what happened. You guys were praising the Lord that you made it out on the other side. You know, it's a great season, July. It's a summer of of holidays of one kind or another, and today is another holiday. Um, One of uh, lesser known value, but uh, it really carries a spiritual poignancy to it. One that's been misunderstood in history, but in America should be appreciated and, and cared for. This isn't working. Can you do the slide thing for me? You'll do it. There's supposed to be a picture of 7-Eleven up here, and then everyone's going to laugh. <laughs> Today is July 11th, a national holiday 
where one of the great temples of American history, 7-Eleven, has pronounced to the public that you can come in and get the sweet, sweet nectar of a Slurpee for free. So as you go home today and it's like 197 degrees outside and you're pondering this lamenting psalm, if you would, do so over a Slurpee. Okay, seriously, that's the end of of my jokes here. Today's sermon is called To Respond with a Psalm. How to respond to the wickedness as we observe in Psalm 7. Ah, there it is. Okay, so we're going to have to move pretty quickly today because of the length of the text. However, I do want to spend some time just giving us an overview of this psalm in comparison to the rest of of the Psalms we read in our Bible. The overview of Psalm 7, out of the five types of Psalms, this is a Psalm of lament, the Psalm of sadness. This is a Psalm of mourning. But I don't want you to get into your mind that this would be considered a sad Psalm. Just like in your life, David was experiencing the highs and the lows of life. As we, oh, it is working now. Do I point it? Oh, I point it that way. The highs and the lows of life. There are times, if you will, in our song of life where things are joyous and celebratory and where things are hard and low. This is what we mean when we talk about the Shagan of David. This is a very rare word. It's only used one other time in Scripture. We don't honestly really know what it means. There is commentaries that believe that the reference is mentioned towards some kind of musical structure. That is, When the music is, when it's rejoicing, the music is really high and triumphant. And when it's sad, it's very low and bassy. I don't know anything about music. I'm trying to use words I don't understand. And it says here in the the pretext here of Psalm 7, this is a song which David, King David, sang unto the Lord. This is a prayer, if you will. This is a song written for the intent of the ears of the Lord. A song for private, if you will. And the last thing we need to know about the context of this scripture is that this is concerning a very specific situation, concerning the word, what was said by a man named Cush, the Benjamite. We don't know anything about Shagan. We know hardly uh, very little about the psalm. We also don't know who Cush was, but we can give some guesses. Uh, as a member of the Benjamite, the tribe of Benjamin, the uh, Benjamite, there we go. King Saul, the king that was before David, who was taken out of his throne by God, and the hand of God was on David in such a way that exalted him to be king of Jerusalem. Saul was a Benjamite. In other words, you could say that Cush was on team Saul. And it is believed, we don't want to get too far into this, that something slanderous was said by Cush about David, and it was diminishing the view of his royalty. He was being lied about. And it was being lied about in such a way, I'm sure maybe many of you have had this same experience, where the lies start to be believed like truth. And it gets like a snowball rolling down a hill so far ahead of you that the lies have now taken over what is actually true and there's nothing you can do about it. Don't we know what this is like in our political, social media world? You can just say whatever you want, and if it gets 100 million tweets, that means it's true. David is dealing with a situation just like this. The great 
the, the, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon calls it in his commentary. He says that David writing Psalm 7 is the song of the slandered saint. This is what he says here in, in the point of his commentary and really the emphasis for our sermon today. Listen to these words. <clears throat> this may be called the song of the slandered saint. Even the sorest of evils may furnish occasion for a psalm. What a blessing it would be if we could turn even the most disastrous event into a theme for song. And so turn the tables upon our great enemy. Let us learn a lesson from Luther. This is now Spurgeon talking about Luther. I know it's confusing. Who once said, David made psalms, we will also make psalms and sing them as well as we can to, honor, to the honor of our Lord and to the spite and mock of the devil. Maybe you could say it like this. This is the point I want to bring to you guys today. That our response to every kind of life circumstance ought to be a psalm written in praise to the Lord. Now that's easy to do when things are going awesome. And we still can think of examples of we've lost a loved one or somebody who is close to us, maybe is dealing with a bad diagnosis, and we find a way to draw out worship out of what I would identify as general evil, the sadness and brokenness of this world. But there's another layer to this. It's much harder to sing praise and honor to the Lord when it seems like the fiery arrow of the devil is directed right at you. When it's not just evil being done, but when evil being, is being done directly to you. When it's your name being slandered. When you are the one who's directly the victim. The question is, what do we do then? How do we respond with our life being a psalm? I want to argue that there's four things we see from Psalm 7 that David does, okay? Our life is a psalm. This is how we should respond, and here's how. One, we return to the refuge. Two, we, David sides with God. Number three, David is depending on the righteous judge. And then finally, David gets to his destination praising the Lord. So let's just jump right into it here. Uh, in verse 1, I want to bring some highlights to some things, and then we'll, we'll, we'll land these points here. So returning to the refuge. Oh Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all of my per pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rendering in pieces with none, with none to deliver. This is what I want to emphasize today. Oh Lord my God, David says, in you I take refuge. This is identifying a, a very broad and common used doctrine in the scripture. This is a part of what we would call Christology or Christocentric theology. It's the idea that in order for us in salvation, if you are saved, the Bible says that you have taken off the old man and put on the new, right? That you are wearing Christ. Galatians tells us that you are in Christ Jesus. There is a relocation of your identity. That the old has passed away and a new thing has come. And in, to reference it, you are in it. When you are saved, you are granted into God. And in turn, you receive the benefits that come with God's presence. You can do things that you could not do beforehand. So let's paint this picture a little clearer. 
Uh, Proverbs 18 says, this comes all over the scripture. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous man who runs into it and is safe. Same thing here in 91.2. I believe this was the call to worship. I will say to the Lord, you are my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And Psalm 144, he is my steadfast love, my fortress. He is my shield in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. There's this picture here that we see of being in Christ. The first thing David David does when his name is slandered and the lies are growing outside of his control, he writes a psalm with his life. And he does so in a very specific place. He returns to the refuge, the hiding place, if you will, I'm going to call it the strong tower that is God. When he is attacked personally, he runs to his protection. Do we do the same thing? I got to tell you, I grew up in a place and a time and, and back where I'm from, you know, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Now I'm going to take your sticks and your stones and I'm going to shove them out down your mouth and we'll see what kind of words you can say. See how easy that pops up in me? That aggression, that pick yourself up by your own bootstraps type of mentality. There are times in our Christian life when I would argue that we in fact leave our strong tower, take matters into our own hands, and as a result, we offer a lesser blow to our enemy. Leaving the tower... I want to give you an example. It looks something like this. Imagine, if you will, if there's a tower over here. It is made of diamond and ironclad. It's impenetrable. It's so thick, nothing can get to it. You are surrounded in every direction by the protection of God, as it were, and the fiery arrows of the devil cannot hit this tower. And for a couple reasons, maybe it's one belief system jumping in front of another. Maybe it's the amount of time that it's taking for the wrong to be made right. Maybe it's some delusion about your love over somebody else instead of God's love for you. See, I'm a big guy, whatever. My mom, or my wife, when she gets into mama bear mode, makes me look like teddy bear. She's going to run right out of that tower and give somebody a what for. But what do we do when we leave the tower? When we take matters into our own American, own ideological, own logical hands, if we will. When you're having conversations with somebody who isn't there, what's the first thing you do when you're slender? That's what I do. I start to have a conversation with the person like they were there. Or maybe you go and complain to your spouse and you get into a little bit of gossip about who's saying what and what's happening. We leave our strong tower. And in, as a result, two things happen. We can't offer nearly the blow that God can offer. And number two, now we are vulnerable to another attack. When you are slandered, when your attack is personal, my encouragement to you is to remain in the benefits of God by doing one thing, saying my flesh isn't good enough. I'm not going to let the deeds of the flesh take over. I'm not going to be tempted into action of my own kind. I'm going to stay in the tower and let God do it. David responds to this horrible situation by returning to the refuge. In verses uh, 3 through 5, he says this, O Lord my God, if I have done this, this is David speaking, 
If there is wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. We're not going to talk about Selah very much. Daniel referenced it a few weeks ago. It means to pause and to meditate. He is giving this this choosing of siding with God. Watch this even against himself. David is saying, if, Lord, there is wrong in my hands, if what is happening to me is your justice being delivered, then let it happen. If I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil, that's what we believe was happening to David. A friend repaid him with evil. If there was something that David did that was like this, then let it be. Abraham Lincoln, when he was asked during the Civil War, do you believe God's on your side? This was his response. He said, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side, said the president. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. How easy is it for us when you start to feel victimized or or, or slandered against that you start building up your own case? You make the assumption that you are in the right every time. And we're not making any assumption that David was in the wrong. The question is, when you return to your high high tower, when you return to your refuge, are you making your defense for God? Or are you saying, God, you're the judge. You make the defense for me. If there is wrong in my heart, do you have it within yourself in the midst of the gospel to side with God against yourself? Do we love the risen Lord enough to say, Lord, slay me if I'm wrong because you need to be glorified. End my life as it were and if it be because you are worthy of praise. You want to find a way to see if you value yourself over God or God over yourself? Make sure that you have squared away in your heart how great and important God is and how minuscule we are without Him. He is what makes us important. He is what makes us precious and valuable. It's because of what He says about you that you have immeasurable great worth in the earth. But if you side against God, if you become the slanderer, if you will, you have stepped away from the very thing that has brought you value. First, or Colossians 3, 1-4 through four says this. This is just a portion in, in verse 2. He says, set your minds on the thing, things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. We have to move our perspective when we are in deep pain away from me and immediately up to God. It's hard to do when the pain is so distracting. But the greatest example of this we can see in the Scripture comes from what I call the sanctifying garden prayer. This is in Matthew 26. Many of us know this story. It's a reference to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I just want to read some passages to you here. He says um, in verse uh, 26, 36, he says, Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane and to, said to his disciples, sit here while I go over here and pray. In verse uh, 39, he says, and going a little further away from the disciples, he fell on his face and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I, but, your, but as your will be done. 
And then again in verse 42, he says, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, let your will be done. He goes away a third time and prays after that. Here's the question of the sanctifying garden prayer. Is your response when your, uh, when you are slandered or there's some violation and accusation towards you, is your response to use this as an opportunity to be sanctified in your little garden? Is there a place where you can go in your heart and your mind? Maybe a physical place. For me, the higher the elevation, the more I feel like I'm around the Lord, just in nature. I love that kind of stuff. I have to get away. Because when the pain is loud, or when my anger is boiling, it is hard to cast, as Colossians says, and keep my mind to the things above. There's this beautiful picture here of Jesus who is, in, make no mistake, in that moment dealing with great anguish and pain. The physical anguish and pain is coming. But in that moment, the turmoil and temptation to use power or to defy God is abundant in front of him because he's about to endure such great pain. And what does he do? Not my will, but yours be done. Lord, I'm being slandered. Lord, this is really hard. Lord, this is a terrible thing. I'm siding with you against myself. And if my cause in this life is to, be, is to endure this trial or to go through this, then your will be done because I side with you. It's a sanctifying work to again and again choose yourself. Luke uh, 28 tells us, or Luke, uh, I don't know. It's in Luke. <laughs> oh, I'm confused. Jesus says that if you want to be my disciple, you must die to yourself daily. In other words, you would take, deny yourself, take up your cross every day, and follow him. This is the banner of death. The cross is not a symbol of glory. The cross at the time is a symbol of torture and destruction. He's saying, um, he's, saying he's asking us to deny our own life, cast our eyes to the things above, and to follow him. And through that work, we will become discipled, disciples of, followers of, of God. David responds to the situation by siding with God even against himself. Okay, now we're going to move to depending on the righteous judge. So first thing he does is he gets to his refuge. The second thing he does is he prays and he sides with God against himself. And now there's this long stanza here, verse 6 through 16, where he's talking about God as a judge. Now, there's a few things I want to point out in here just as contextual reference. Not necessarily takeaway points. These are potential tripping points in your reading of the Scripture that may mess with your theology a little bit. So we want to make sure to clean those things up. What David does third is he depends on the righteous judge. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up. This is verse 6. Against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you, for you have appointed a judgment. Lest the assemblies of the people be gathered about you, over it return on high. The Lord judges the, uh, the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in me. Okay, so there's a couple things I want to point out here that can just cause us a little contextual miscuing if we don't spend a little time on this. First of all, in verse, in verse 6, he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. 
Your God does not sleep. Okay? He sees all. He knows all. He sees the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. Don't concern yourself that God has a slumbering eye while you're in pain. That is not the truth. David is referencing this as a poetic understanding of of what he's specifically asking God to do according to his situation. He's saying, take action, God. You rise up now and enact your judgment immediately. Okay, the second thing we see is in verse 7. Let the assemblies of the people be gathered about you and return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. This is a picture, if you will, of a judge taking his seat in the morning. There are judges in Fort Collins, and we do not go to their house and knock on their door and ask for them to, to hand down judgment. But when the judge wakes up and gets ready and puts his little robe on and gets his cup of coffee and sits down in that chair in the morning, the people line up in the public square that judgment may come out. He's saying, God, come judge all of the peoples. Judge me in public. Now lastly, the point here when we see in the end of uh, verse uh, 8. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and in cor- according to the integrity that is in me. It would seem here that David is saying according to his own righteousness and his own integrity. But we know that Romans 3 tells us that not one is righteous, no, not one. In other words, he's not saying that his own, he's not clean or sinless in any way. David has a long history, both in the Psalms and otherwise, of declaring that it's the Lord who saves him. He's in need of salvation. Instead, David is saying, judge that I'm in right standing, the meaning of righteousness. Am I standing in truth? Judge me according to, in my integrity, I believe what I'm saying is true. I want to be standing in right standing with you, the judge. Judge me against this in public. What a vulnerable thing, isn't it? He says in verse 9, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. You who, Lord, O Lord, who judges the hearts and minds. What is David trying to get at? No rhetoric is going to spin over the judge that is God. No fine words, no beautiful outward appearance, no stacking of physical evidence is going to sway the Lord. Why? Because we serve a God who judges your very heart. Who has a depth of understanding of who you are beyond yourself in your own mind. There is no lie that will trip up or stoop your God. He is the God who judges hearts and minds. The inner man is the Hebrew would try to understand it. David is saying, I want to be in right standing with you. Do this in the public square. Now, in verse 6, we're going to jump back up. We see this verse here where he says, Arise, O Lord, and I want you to take action. The specific verse says this, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of, a fury of my enemies. Doesn't it sound to you like David's using God as like a hitman? Like a genie in a bottle? This is what Spurgeon and and commentators of of like would call this an impeccatory prayer. Impeccatory means a curse. And here's the question of the day. Is it right in our age today to pray for the curse and destruction of another? 
Is it appropriate to pray like that? I would tell you that there's probably very few of you in here who've even asked yourself that question, but I'm sure that there are some who've been so wounded, so beat up, so victimized by one situation or another where you have gone to the Lord and said, Lord, sick them. Is it the right thing to do? First of all, we need to make sure that we understand David's heart here. This is not the only case where David has been wrong. In fact, David has a long history in his life of being wronged one way or another. And if you look at the broad view, we're going to try to do like David does, a righteous man, we would see that more often than not, he is exceedingly gracious to his enemies. He is kind and slow to anger. He has an opportunity in a cave, in kind of an awkward situation, to kill Saul. The king who's persecuting him, who is not giving up his throne that's rightfully David's according to the Word of God. And he's in the back of this cave and he has the right to end the tear for him and for his people, and he doesn't do it. Because he says that position that he is in is a righteous position. And what does Saul say when he finds out? David, you are a righteous man. His son Absalom Flies off the handle. Loses his mind. And when they go to capture Absalom, what does David say to him? And be gentle with Absalom. Over and over again, we see David displaying grace to his enemies. And we see the same call in the Scripture from Jesus. The call is specific to love our enemies. We're even challenged to pray for our enemies. I'm not asking you as a Christian people to get walked all over. I'm not the walk all over type. I'm not asking you to dive back into relationships that are unhealthy um, in an unwise way. I am saying that there is a specific time for an imprecatory prayer, but hear me church, it is rare. A great uh, commentator out of uh, Kansas City, Sam Storm, says this, that there are four patterns that he sees in all imprecatory situations in the Bible. If you're going to pray the assault and judgment of God on somebody, you better make sure that these patterns are in place. Number one, almost always we see them spending great time calling this person to repentance. Are you, have you been man enough or woman enough to say, hey, 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 that was uncalled for, that hurt. And here's why. Number two, this has never been a picture of payback. It is proper judgment. Nobody in the Scripture is asking God to enact vengeance in the place of themselves. This is not revenge. This is, God, this is somebody praying for God to judge the person the way God said He would judge them all along. Number three, David was asking to defend God's honor and not his own. Again, this is about the thinking about ourselves. I'm hurt, and so I say, I don't want to have like that, so I'm going to have that person get hurt worse than I'm hurt. That's sinful. That's wrong. And God does not act that way. David instead is saying, this offense against me is thwarting what you are trying to do in the earth. It is evil, and it is wrong, and you hate evil. Judge evil because you said you would. And the last thing he says, it's based on God's promises. Nobody in Scripture is asking for more or less than what God already said He was going to do to these people or to this situation. So, there is an appropriate time for imprecatory prayer, but I would tell you, 
you ought to consider yourself. How would you want to be prayed for when you have been the enemy? When you have been the slanderer? When you have been the evildoer? Okay. Depending on the righteous judge. Okay, let the evil and the wicked come to an end. This is verse 9. This is, should be underlined in everybody's Scripture here. Uh, we're going to go pretty fast here. This is what we would call the, the peak of the psalm. It's a mirroring psalm. This is the center of the cinnamon roll, if you will. This is the verse that David has been getting to the whole time. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. May you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O oh God. David gets to a point in the psalm where he's no longer talking about his situation. He's no longer talking about the enemy. He's elevated his thought to the same thought that God has. Let evil come to an end. You bring your righteous and establish them. You be the judge who tests the minds and the hearts. He's saying, God, beyond my situation, fix what is broken. Has God done that? Has God defeated evil? He has effectively destroyed and put an end to all evil on the cross. He solves this problem by sending His Son Jesus to never slander anybody, but to become slandered. In other words, Jesus, who never sinned, became sin in exchange for us. How did Jesus respond to slander? I want you to look at some of these verses here. I know they're small. I'm going to read them to you. I'm just making a case. Matthew 26, 65. He says, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy, speaking of Jesus. What further wickedness do we need? You have now heard, the blasph uh, heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And then they spit on him. Struck him and say, prophesy. In uh, Mark 15, he says, and to those who passed by deterred him, wagging their heads, he's on the cross, saying, ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from this cross. So the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. We get angry when we hear those verses. Don't, I mean, I get kind of boiled up. I get frustrated at the God I so love being made so low. And instantly, when I read Psalm 7, I immediately take myself to the place of David, the one whom is slandered. But I'm here to tell you this morning, we have to humble ourselves and say that there's a cush in us all. We are the slanderers. We have put Jesus on the cross. I love the worship song when it says, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear his mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. The Crossing Church, we have to understand what to do when we are slandered against. 
But we, have, we should never forsake the idea that we too have been the slanderers. We're quick to want to pass judgment and to bring imprecatory prayers down and do something like in Avenger movies to our evil uh, doers against us. But we are not so quick to act the same way when we realize that we were the slanders, we were the spitters, we were the sinners. The only way to receive this salvation that God offers is by faith in Him. It's by entering into this temple. The question this morning is, have you done that? Do you know Him? Do you realize yourself as a slanderer? Do you appreciate that you are in need of a Savior who will enact judgment against you if you do not? And are you willing to repent and call Him your King? Okay, we're almost done here, I promise. There it goes. Finally, depending on the righteous judge. He says, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and God who feels indignation every day. I'm going to run through these. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent it and readied his bow. He has prepared it for him, his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. God, it's almost as if David sees through the eye of God, if you will, and he's getting the response of how God is seeing what he's going to do to evil. That he is readying his bow. He is wetting his sword. That means sharpening his sword. He is bringing out judgment. And he has created a system where the evildoers will have evil fall on their own heads. It's best summarized in this last verse here, 16. His mischief returns upon his own head and his own skull. His violence descends. We are talking about David asking for judgment right now in the time that he's living in. And as we've referenced, there is an appropriate time for that. But as Chad mentioned yesterday, that there's a time when every person's life where we have to wait on the Lord, where we have to depend on the judge and depend on his timing. And Chad said last week that it does two things for you. This works with your walk and it works with your witness. It helps you be sanctified and it helps you tell a song or sing a song to the world that you are not going to take matters into your own hands. That you are going to trust that whether God judge immediately or if He's offering grace to your enemy, that He may repent and be saved. That eventually, judgment is coming. That you serve a God who's going to dry every tear. He's going to right every wrong. The picture in Revelation is that God is on high casting perfect judgment. That the baby can stick their head in the den of a cobra. That we can live in a world that is right. That it is coming, whether now or in eternity. Sometimes, though, we don't see that. Who here in their life, raise your hand, has, has seen evil prosper? Not just the raiders, okay? I'm talking about real evil. Evil win the day. And we get to a place in our Christianity or in our American idealism where we want to be tough and we just say to ourselves, that's just the way it is. Listen, church, the way it is is not natural. It is broken. It is wrong, and He's going to make it right. He's going to fix it, and He's going to fix it in this earth, and He's going to fix it and make it right for you and for me and for all that those, and those who are saved. 
he's going to judge properly because that is the natural way, the way God made it. David depends on the righteous judge and his timing instead of taking matters into his own hands. And the last thing, praising the Lord Most High. He closes out in Psalm, 17, or in Psalm 7, verse 17. He says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to His righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. David responds to his deep accusation, his horrible pain, with a psalm of praise to the Lord. There's this song I've been listening to recently. Uh, I don't even know the name of the author. And it, it's this picture here of when he says, uh, it looks like I'm surrounded, but in actuality, I'm surrounded by you. When it looks like we're in a desperate situation, when we sing a psalm to the Lord, we are sanctifying ourselves by trusting in God. We're sharing a witness to the world by showing them that we will not take matters into our own hands. Again, I'm not saying you can't defend yourself. We don't want to be baby Christians. But we are going to depend on the Lord. And that in actuality, it may look like I'm vulnerable, but I am in a strong tower from the Lord. Because death may come, and, and the grave may be eminent for me, but Jesus has declared me in victory. Not because of my action, or because of my work, but because I am in Christ by faith. What a cathartic experience of David's prayer when he lands him here, going through the emotion of his pain, hidden in a strong tower, praising the Lord, trusting that the Lord will judge perfectly, that he sides with God against himself even in his own demise. When he goes through this process, his hardened day ends with, I will rejoice. Because ladies and gentlemen, he wins. He's winning. It doesn't look like it. It doesn't feel like it. Trust me, he's winning. And because we are in him, we're winning too. Victorious is the ending of David's psalm. Regardless of your circumstance today, I pray that your life, that your circumstance is responded with a song to the Lord. And may it be a song of praise to the Lord Most High. Let's pray. Father, I thank You today for who You are, for Your righteous Word, for the gospel that you have show, shared with us. I thank you for the hard times in life not being voided in Scripture. We do not read a Bible that just has victory after victory after victory. We have a Bible that shows us how to respond when evil seems to win the day. I thank you, Lord, that you have equipped us with an ability to defend ourselves, to judge rightly, to right wrongs to work through problems but i'm also grateful lord that we have a fallback that is your kingdom your righteousness your good judging work and i ask this morning that we would depend namely by faith on who you are and on your judgment over our own let us today declare and remain in your strong tower let you be our refuge as we go through our week and may we always remember that none of this is possible without the work of Christ who opened Himself up that we may enter by faith. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.